0: Backchat 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 back back Politics and current affairs Backpack. Backpack. Back chat. Backchat Backchat Your alternative to talkback Yes indeed, you are listening to Backchat on FBI Radio, your freshest wrap of news and current affairs. I'm Swatadas
1: And I'm Amber Schultz, filling in
0: for Shami. That's right, and happy voting day, guys. Happy voting day. Yes, we've been gearing up for the federal elections for a few weeks now here at Backchat, and it seems like our influence on the Australian political landscape has not been insignificant. Yeah, I
1: heard that you guys discussed the potential for an Australian bullet chain train on the show a few weeks back, and since then, uh, Labor MP Anthony Albanese pledged $1 billion to secure a high-speed rail network between Brisbane and Melbourne. Making waves, guys.
0: What can I say? Uh, Not only that, but our guest on Back Chat, one Asian Senate candidate, Michael Hing was knocked off the ballot due to a technicality by the AEC. It's uh, it's almost like we're too powerful. Mm.
1: First up on the show, we have Ariadne Roman, a professor of political sociology at the University of Sydney to discuss today's federal election from a youth perspective.
0: And after that, we're going to be speaking to Australian-born Palestinian lawyer Ramia Abdo Sultan about an arguably more political event happening today. <laughs> it's the grand finale of Eurovision. But... What you may not have heard about is Al-Nakbar Day, which passed this Wednesday, commemorating the displacement of Palestinians that preceded and followed the Israeli Declaration of Independence in the 40s. It's a very political show today, and we'll be discussing all that
1: later on in the show. But as always, we want to hear from you. Tell us, who are you putting last on your ballot paper. Text in on 0409 945 945. That's 0409 945 945.
2: To show us all what a beep lying, beep backstabbing, beep treacherous,
1: beep beep she is. Thanks. Colin. Back chat, your alternative to
0: talk back. So, uh, do you know who you're going to be voting for today? Better yet, do you know why you're voting for them? If you don't, you better figure it out before you hit the booth. That's right. In the lead up to this federal election, it's been difficult to pinpoint exactly which of the major parties, if any, have put a valuable emphasis on the needs of Australia's youth. And how effective their advertising has been. The Liberals have even started
1: advertising on SoundCloud. It was a pretty abrupt and rude interruption. To help us sort all this out, we're going to be talking to Ariadne Vroman, a professor of political sociology at the University of Sydney, about this election. From a youth perspective. Hey there, Ariadne. Hi, Amber. Hi, Sweatop.
0: Hi, thank you.
1: Thanks for coming on the show. Now, looking at the election campaign so far, which parties do you think have been trying to do the most for young people?
3: Okay, I think it's really been the progressive side of politics, yep. both the Australian Labor Party, who've committed to bringing back a minister for youth.
0: Just come a bit closer a bit to bit the closer. mic. Yeah, Not sure. <laughs> <laughs> we want to hear loud and clear.
3: <laughs> So this Minister for Youth. Minister for Youth. OK, so we haven't had a Minister for Youth since 2013. Mm. Uh, Labor brought one back in in 2007. But also, really importantly, they've recommitted to funding the Australian Youth Affairs Coalition, which is the peak advocacy organisation for youth that's been running on no money for the last six years.
1: So what do they do? Uh,
3: the AYAC, the Australian mm-hmm. Youth Affairs Coalition, they consult with young people, they do research, they do advocacy, and they represent on core issues that matter to young people, work, housing... Climate and so on.
0: So, employment and housing affordability, uh, affordability <laughs> are tipped to be the key elections for young Australians. Do you think the major parties have promised enough to address these issues? I think you're right that uh,
3: work and security at work and housing affordability, both in terms of rent and future buying of houses, is really important to young people because this is the hugest generational shift that we've seen. 50% of young people now work in insecure or precarious work and most people are never going to get onto the housing market unless they have rich parents. Mm -hmm. So this, this discussion has been quite real for a generation of young people. And again, it's really only the Labor Party and the Greens that are talking about this. The unions have really campaigned quite hard on the issue of um, in- uh, security at work and that's very much had a focus on young people. Mm-hmm. Whereas we've seen the Conservatives have kind of avoided the issue and have tended, when they've talked about housing and um, negative gearing
1: and so on, they've really played to their base and mm-hmm. their base is older Australians. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, we've seen that the environment is a huge policy point that is resonating with Australians at the moment, both young and old. Are the pollies taking this into consideration and will either party enact environmental change if elected? Yeah, that's really right. Climate change
3: is a big issue for everyone. We're seeing in all the polling that's been going on pre-election and on things like the ABC's Vote Compass, 80% of people think that we need to be doing something about climate. We need to be investing more in renewables. It's really a cross-generational issue. Uh, but n- none of the parties are focusing on it probably as much as people would like. Mm. Again, the Greens, it's a core issue to them. They've always stuck with that as a fundamental um, concern of theirs and wanting to move to Uh, total renewables in the sort of uh, distant future. That's always been a core issue. Labor have definitely committed to bringing back a version of the carbon tax, or it'll probably be seen as something quite different, but, you know, they believe that climate change is happening, whereas half of the federal government, the national... um, The Nationals and the Liberal Party still deny that climate change is really happening.
0: But there have been so many incredible climate change movements and protests around Australia right now. Very exciting. Why do you reckon they are so successful in Australia? Do you think it's because the parties are denying it?
3: Yeah, I think that that's really right. There is that political opportunity there that it's such a uh, polarising issue for the parties. It really differentiates. Uh, the progressive side, from the more conservative side. So that's given an opportunity for movements to be active, to arise. What the um, school students were doing around the movements following um, Greta in Sweden has been really exciting and inspiring, and it has What's been noticed. Greta? Um, Greta Thunberg uh, with the school strikes for climate change. Oh, okay. So So it's sort of, it's this transnational movement right now of young people being active on climate movements. And it's been a really important moment, and it is really important for the future. I also think there are other things going on that people are really concerned. We have had the hottest summer in history mm-hmm. in Australia, and that's what makes climate, um, you know, climate change really tangible for people. Mm-hmm. That they can sort of
0: see the everyday effects of it as well. And we've got continued drought effects on farming and so on too. Mm-hmm. Why do you think the big parties are not concerned about quite a sizable voting demographic? And, you know, the fact that they care so much about climate change, why aren't they addressing that issue?
3: Look, I think a variety of reasons about who political parties think their base is and who will vote for them and what will mobilise them on particular issues. Uh, So I think that rightly uh, people who vote green uh, because they're concerned about climate change and those green votes are going to go to the Labor Party through preferences. They're not going to go to the Coalition. So the Coalition is still playing to what they think um, their base cares about. But I also think that they've kind of missed the boat. As that point I made earlier, this is a sort of cross-generational, cross-partisan issue. So it then makes you want to question about uh, who are the other kind of special interests still that the parties have in their back pockets that are really
0: influencing their agendas. You're listening to Backchat on on FBI Radio 94.5 FM with Swetha and Amber. We're speaking to Ariadne Roman, a professor of political sociology at the University of Sydney about how the major parties have been shaping up before today's federal election and We have some texts in. Amber, I would love you to have the honour to read the first text in. So we've got Sam from Newtown saying, put the Liberals
1: last. In in capitals. In caps. (laughs) Of course he's from Newtown. No one else would text that through. Sam, thank
0: you for sending that through. (laughs) Um, And we've got a text from Andy in Glebe, and he has said, I'm in Fred Niles electorate. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says, I can't wait to have the pleasure of putting him dead last in my ballot. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> we are asking people to text in. Who are they going to put last on the ballot paper? Mm-hmm. Are, are you going to Vote below the line, Amber. Oh, look, I
1: think so. But honestly, after I get to about six, I'm just kind of guessing. It's just kind of... <laughs> There's
0: so many. And what shakes me is the name of certain parties that mm. sound really deliberately, awesome. Yeah, deliberately misleading. I can't misleading. think of any off the top of my head, but, uh, you know, they are quite misleading. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So if you guys would like to tell us who you're putting last on the ballot paper, mm-hmm. text in at 409 945 945. That's 409 945 945.
1: Um, Now, back to Ariadne, we've got, uh, there's a new survey from Reach Out that shows that 50% of young people have been politically active in the past year, which is interesting because I think that the idea that's always pushed is that the youths are incredibly disengaged. Has the nature of political activism or lobbying changed over the years? And if so, just how much has it changed?
3: Yeah, I'd really like to see the death of the myth of um, apathy of young people. (laughs) It's (laughs) probably never really, it's never really been true. Mm. What it does reflect is that young people are disillusioned often with the major parties and with politicians, but they're still very politically engaged around the issues that matter to them. So if we're looking at this political engagement that young people are doing right now, it's going to be the kinds of things that they do. In there every day. It's talking to other people about the issues that matter. It's being active on social media, increasingly on Instagram, which I think has been really interesting during this particular election. Uh,
0: Could you you delve into that? So, what's the the action on Instagram? So. uh, Originally,
3: a lot of us who were interested in social media saw that Facebook was the main space for people to be able to share their political views but also engage in discussion. As young people are retreating more and more from Facebook, as older people take over Facebook (laughs) mm -hmm, as a space which is understandable, uh, Instagram is kind of the favoured space for younger people. So it's how does politics happen there? And I think as people use more and more um, election-specific or political-issue-specific hashtags on Instagram, so they're kind of creating communities that way. But also it's kind of the visual representations of what they're involved in as well. So Instagram is not just all about selfies. (laughs) It's an an important part of it, for sure. But uh, we're just seeing increasingly, but also the parties are using Instagram. I've been following For My Sins, Scott Morrison and Bill Shorten's Instagram um, during Mm. the election, and they've actually been fascinating, the way they're constructing themselves as kind of ordinary people Mm. and will reflect on the engagements that they're having and using video, using stories really, really well. And again, I think it's that story function that you kind of get to express who you are, what you're doing, what you're thinking about, that makes Instagram a great space to be talking about the issues that matter to you.
0: I am curious as to how many professors who expertise in social media are following Mm -hmm. politicians. It's probably like a fifth of their follower list. Um, We were talking this morning and Amber, you got an ad from Was it ScoMo? Yeah, it was from mm. ScoMo in the middle of SoundCloud, which SoundCloud is, is pretty
1: niche. It's not not a lot of people are on it. No. And I'm just curious, is that effective? Do you know? Do you think it's effective? And are they targeting youth correctly by invading my ears when I'm trying <laughs> to listen to songs? Well,
3: I think they've kind of got the point about if you want to engage with young people, you've got to go to where young people are and mm-hmm. not expect them to come to you. So that's kind of been something that people have been saying for about 15 years. So they kind of got that now. But whether or not actually invading that space where you don't expect politics to happen really matters or really leads to changing your vote Mm. um, is still a bit of a mystery.
0: So, I mean, as I mentioned, you are an expert, I reckon, in social media (laughs) and political participation. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on Clive Palmer's reach. So he's put ads, multiple newspapers, social media, he's texting, Yeah. Do you think that there is a significant link between um, a politician's popularity and how much money they put behind their campaign? Yeah, Clive is a very
3: interesting (laughs) example. Um, I don't... Again, if I was going to make a prediction, I don't think Clive's going to do very well in the Mm. election. I don't even know if he will be um, elected. But his saturation of all forms of media has been kind of distinct and interesting in this campaign. But in the end, I kind of think it's irritated people. People need to use social media to reinforce what people are already thinking. Mm. They're not going to bring people necessarily to think that that is the representative
1: for them. Mm. And the big question I think that everyone wants to know (laughs) is what are your predictions for tonight? Yeah,
3: as I said before, (laughs) I'm often reluctant to make predictions because, hey, I could be wrong. But anyway, I do think Labor will win comfortably today. Comfortably? And and I think Mm. that they'll probably get about 80 seats in the lower house. The Senate is going to be a lot more interesting and a lot more mixed and diverse. So whatever happens, even if we have a Labor government, what happens in the Senate, and for their capacity to get new policy through, that's going to be an interesting challenge.
0: Mm. Well, we'll hold you to it, Ariadne. (laughs) Uh, Thanks for talking to us today. This morning, Ariadne, that was Ariadne Roman, a professor of political sociology at the University of Sydney. But stay tuned because after the song, we are talking about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict unfolding against the backdrop of the Eurovision Song Contest and why you might be thinking twice before supporting it this year. This is Red Mercedes by Amine.
1: To show us all what a beep lying, beep backstabbing, beep treacherous, beep beep she is. Thanks, Colin. chat. Gotcha. Your alternative to talk back. Leather corsets, Camp Europop Music, and Kate Miller Heidke. No, I'm not talking about Mardi Gras, but the Eurovision Song Contest. This year, Australia is participating yet again as Europe's slightly strange and extremely uncouth adopted sibling. But the choice of host country has sparked international controversy due to, due to the ongoing conflict with Palestine and the historic and ongoing human rights abuses.
0: We also observed Al-Nakbar Day this Wednesday commemorating the displacement of Palestinians from Israel, which seemed to go completely unnoticed by the media in favour of coverage of the song contest. To help us make sense, of all of this, we're going to be speaking to Palestinian Australian lawyer Ramia Abdul Sultan, uh, who is a lawyer based in Sydney's West. Hi, Ramia, welcome to the show. Hi, good morning. How are you? Pretty good. Thanks for coming yeah. on. So, Ramia, to you. start off, can you explain to us what Al Nakba Day is?
2: Yeah, so look, my, my, May, May 15th, 1948, um, is actually known and referred to as Al Nakba, which literally translates to the catastrophe. And that is the day that, um, you know, Palestinians around the world commemorate, um, that particular day as, as having, um, lost, I guess, their, their state initially where 750,000 Palestinians were forced from their homes, um, and close to 15,000 Palestinians being massacred, um, cold bloodedly and, um, approximately 530 villages depopulated. So it's the day in which Israel, or the time in which Israel actually conquered pretty much about 78% of Palestine um, back then. And, you know, what's really sad is is that the, the concept of al-Makba actually um, has continued uh, to, to carry through and on up until today. It wasn't a single-handed or a single event that occurred back then. Mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, this is obviously a very big question, but the conflict goes back years between Israelis and Palestinians. So what's the situation at the moment? And if you can sum it up briefly, how did we get <laughs> yeah. here?
2: Yeah, look. Um, look, the catastrophe facing the Palestinian people is actually a defining global justice issue of our time. And we need to really start giving it the, the attention that it deserves. Um, but firstly, I don't think we can continue to term the issues arising out of, um, Palestine or Israel as being a conflict. Mm. Um, because the word conflict actually implies clash. It implies, you know, difference of opinion with an equal or balanced right to have an opinion to start off with. But what we see in Palestine is anything but that. Mm. Um, I guess by its very definition, it's an occupation by a very powerful military state that is armed and supported by the West against an impoverished, powerless, stateless and and, and displaced people um, who simply want their right to return to their homes, or at the very least, the right to exist peacefully um, in their own lands alongside Israel. So, you know, um, the world, I guess, needs to start acknowledging that fourth to fifth generation Palestinian children are now being brought up in refugee camps inside and outside of Palestine, and they're living in chronic poverty. Um, it, it's it's something that has, you know, as I said right at the beginning, Al-Nakar wasn't a single event. It's something that's actually carried through and it's had such detrimental um, effects on future generations. Uh, we're seeing the remnants of, of the atrocity up until today. Um, I know that... Hundreds of thousands more of Palestinians are actually suffering discrimination just with um, access to public services, land rights, and employment, even within Israel. And we know of Gaza's um, 12-year blockade, where Mm -hmm. over 2 million people um, are pretty much uh, on the brink of poverty. They're subject to psychological violence on a daily basis because of its restrictions of of movement um, due to the uh, blockade that Israel has imposed on it for the last 12 years. Mm -hmm. So... <laughs> yeah, sorry to, there's cut a lot your... to say clearly
1: <laughs> do you think that the west is an enabler of what's happening in the region or you know who's to blame here
2: oh look i mean <laughs> this is a very huge uh question and it's a it's a big topic by you know definitely the west is an absolute enabler to what's happening um we know there's blood on the hands of many powerful countries around the world who are supporting i guess the oppressive regime of the israeli government so we know that uh, the united the united states by itself injected about 3.1 billion dollars in military aid last year to israel um and at the same time last year they actually cut all funding to to the united nations um which which amounted to about 250 million dollars that supported i guess critical services um to palestinian children in west in the west bank and gaza so you see that the west definitely does have a part to play and, and you know we can't actually forget about Morrison's um, endorsement to to recognize West Jerusalem as an Israeli capital last year, or Australian aid to Palestine actually being significantly reduced. The West definitely do have a part to play. There's blood on their hands. Mm -hmm. um, And it's all through the injecting, constant injecting of of military aid, basically. Um, to support this, um, this oppressive regime.
0: You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio 94.5 FM with Das and Amber Shorts. We're speaking to Ramia Abdo Sultan, who's currently, who currently serves on the Executive Committee of the Gaza Children's Fund, a non-for-profit humanitarian organization supporting children and widows in Palestine. Ramya, how does this conflict relate to this year's Eurovision contest?
2: Well, look, I mean, as we all know, Israel is currently hosting the Eurovision um, Song Contest since it won in 2018. And uh, Israel is shamelessly using the Eurovision as part of its official, you know, brand Israel strategy, which wants to present Israel's prettier face and whitewash, I guess, and distract the world's attention from its war crimes against Palestinians. Um, what's really sad is only... Two days after its 2018 Eurovision win, um, Israel actually massacred 62 Palestinians in Gaza, including six children. And that same evening, its main, you know, its, its um, victorious competitor Netta at the time actually performed a celebratory um, concert in Tel Aviv hosted by the mayor. And, you know, they all sort of ignored what was happening in their back backyard. And I guess this is where BDS has stepped in. So for those who don't know what BDS is, it's the Boycott Divestment Sanctions Movement, and it is a Palestinian-led movement which upholds, I guess, the, the simple principle that Palestinians are entitled to the same rights as the rest of humanity. So because there is this um, atrocity that's happening in the backyard, I guess, of Israel at the time, at the moment, you know, particularly Gaza, the, um, you know, the... Um, the limitations on Palestinians, even in within the West Bank, what the world or, or those who support the BDS movement is are saying is that you shouldn't um, be hosting such an event. You should actually be cleaning up your own backyard. And they are pretty much trying to put pressure on performers, which obviously hasn't been a um, great success, to withdraw in in boycott of this particular um, event that's happening.
1: And so, do you think this boycott is enough, or, or what else needs to be done?
2: Look, it's, it's not enough, but it is definitely a start. I mean, you know, boycotts generally, I mean, they involve, you know, withdrawing support for Israel um, and Israeli um, international companies that um, support Israel. So, um, and, and, and just to clarify, also divestment um, campaigns pretty much puts pressure on banks and local councils and so forth to withdraw investment. From Israeli companies, so and the sanctions, you know, pressure governments to fulfil their legal obligations um, to hold Israel accountable for what they're doing. So these little subtle things don't um, solve the problem, but they're definitely a great start. Um, there's a lot more work that definitely needs to be done, and one of them is to continue this conversation. And you know, I, I, I thank you for the opportunity to have us here because I, I don't think anyone's really talked enough about mm-hmm. Al Um as much as. It's so much attention has gone into eurovision this dark time in our history has gone totally ignored and it 's been seventy one years mm-hmm. um, where where Palestinians have been prevented till now uh, to to return home to have acknowledgement to i guess their fundamental rights as humans so we need to keep talking about al nakba and keep educating people about Palestine and raising awareness mm-hmm. um, we know today is uh you know a, a very a busy day for politicians and so forth, but we need to start putting pressure on our leaders and parliamentarians to call out, I guess, the the barbaric acts of Israel and to actually take active measures to 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 uphold, I guess, their responsibility in stopping the illegal settlements of um. Uh, of, of Israel in, in Palestinian lands and also move towards recognising the state of Palestine. So yeah. there's a lot more to be done. Definitely. Absolutely.
1: It's an important day, not just in Australia, but worldwide. Well, thank you right. thank you so much for talking with us this morning. That was Ramiya Abdul-Sultan, a lawyer and passionate Palestinian advocate.
2: It is absolutely laughable. The woman's off her
0: trade. chat, your alternative to TalkBack.
1: Well, that's all we've got time for today. Big thanks to our producer, uh, producers, Eden Faithful, Natalie and Pip Leeson. Yeah,
0: you got it. And I just skimmed that over I
1: couldn't I wasn't even going to try that one. <laughs> I
0: love it. Um, and a big thanks again to our guests, Ariadne Roman, Ramia Abdo Sultan, and a huge thank you to you, Amber Schultz, for coming oh, on here, co-hosting with me. Um, if you want to check out Amber's amazing work, you can check out her work on Crikey mm-hmm. and anywhere else. Uh, all over, just all over. Head to my Twitter, Amber May Schultz. Okay, all right. A bit of stalking. <laughs> we don't pay for this. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, thanks so much, Amber, and all our guests today. We'll catch you all next week, but before we do, here's Peace, Blossom, Boogie by Babe Rainbow.